Good morning, y'all. Good to see you. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor. All right, we're in the second week of Advent, y'all. Second week of Advent. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Um, Advent is a word that means coming or arrival. Uh, And each week, what that means is during the season of Advent, season between Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's it's a season for us to look back in order to look forward. Right, we look back to the first advent of the first coming, and, and, and of course, each week that reminds us that there's another advent and another coming, right? The first coming was to begin a mission, right? There would be on mission. Jesus, of course, came on mission to redeem and restore, and, and that was going to require him to be born, and then to die, and then to rise again. But, but the resurrection is not the end of the story. The resurrection is the first chapter of restoration, right? And that requires the second advent, when, when the king returns to establish his kingdom, when, when when um, the true man comes to restore uh, the new humanity, when, when our brother comes to deliver us into our family. And so each week, um, I just want to remind us of this, that we look back in order to look forward. Right? We look back to remind us where we are in redemptive history. And, and so um, each week, you know, in the same way during Easter, we, we do this kind of liturgy that just reminds us of, of, of the importance, right? He, he is risen, he is risen indeed, right? It's just one of those things that just helps us share the joy of it. All right, during Advent, we have one uh, that is, um, he has come and he is coming again. So every time I say he has come, you're going to respond with he is coming again. So let's practice this. You ready? He has come. He is coming again. Amen. Good job. All right. We need to remind ourselves of this all the time, uh, but I think we need to remind ourselves of this especially now, right? Uh, we are in a weary world. <laughs> Most of us are deeply weary. I think one of the hardest parts of this season for me has been the isolation. Um, isolation has long been a problem in our culture. Uh, we are an isolated culture. Our individualism, our, our, our uh, sense of, of autonomy tends to, to separate us from community. We, we dream of a house uh, on plenty of acreage where we don't have to interact with our neighbors. We can put up fences and drive into our garage and, and drive out, and we don't have to interact with any human beings. Um, the pandemic has turned our isolation into its own pandemic of loneliness, which is ironic because we have more connectivity than we have ever had in human history, right? Most people in human history knew maybe a couple hundred people. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you, you could only know people you could see, right? So you'd know your neighbors, right? You would know, you would know people in town, right? People, and then later, of course, when, when you know, the recent invention of cars, we got to remind ourselves that's really in human history a very recent invention. You know, you might be able to know people in a town over from your town, Right? Uh, but the reality is now we are so connected um, that, that, that we, you know, like, yo, I'm sure you have hundreds, maybe thousands of friends and followers on social media, if you're on social media, right? I looked this morning, I've got over 1,700 friends on Facebook. I don't know 1,700 people, but apparently I do, because I don't just generally take random friend invites, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. That's a lot of people, right? That's a lot of information. That's a lot of virtual interaction. And we have more virtual interaction, but we have less meaningful human contact than ever before in human history. That has a huge impact, y'all. That has a huge impact. We have more interaction, but less incarnation. Now, incarnation, of course, is the word of the season. It's that big church word. Uh, It simply means in the flesh. 
right? In is the prefix, of course it means in. Carn is the root, which means flesh, right? And, and so incarnation means to be in the flesh, in the body, in a bodily presence, right? We have more interaction, less incarnation, less bodily interaction, right? So we celebrate incarnation at Christmas, of course, when God became flesh, while we are as a culture becoming less and less incarnational, less bodily present. I think this is in many ways part of, if not the root of much of our weariness, endless interactions, but little incarnation. The good news of Advent is that God is an incarnational God, that he meets us where we are. He meets us as we are. He comes to us. And then he invites us to follow that pattern of incarnation. The incarnation is the solution to our isolation. If we want to genuinely engage our loneliness, if we want comfort in our loneliness, we need to follow the example of our incarnational God. So let's take a look at our text. We're going to look at John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 and verse 14 this morning. All right, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 4 and 5 too. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, of the four Gospels, um, John's my favorite, or currently, and pretty much all the time, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the four stories, four authors, um, uh, the the four authors wrote about the life of Jesus. I've always loved John. John has a knack for storytelling. He loves a good story. Um, he's poetic. Like the poetry just comes through the language. He's funny. <laughs> like he knows how to juxtapose events in such a way that it's like ironic and, and it just kind of has a humorous effect. I just love John's writing. John and his brother James were known as the sons of thunder. Um, I don't know why, right? Other than the fact that maybe they were loud, maybe they were competitive, Maybe they, maybe every time they entered a room, it was like thunder. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I don't really know. I know that, that they were big fishermen and, and they were competitive and they were full of life. We know that just from reading the narratives. And what I find interesting is that John is the last of the gospel writers. And I love that even at the opening of his gospel, there's actually a nod to Mark. Mark was the first of the gospel writers. And, and right in the beginning, when he says, in the beginning was the word, he chooses the word beginning here. Uh, that Mark used at the very beginning of his gospel, right? So at the very beginning of, of Mark, uh, he uses this Greek word, arche, which means origin or start, when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? John uses the same word, which I believe is a little bit of a nod, like, hey, Mark, I see you, man. I see you. I'm going to use your same word, but I'm going to give it a different context. I'm going to use it in a different way. I like to imagine John interacting with the other gospel writers, right? Because you got to remember, man, these, these guys aren't just like stained glass saints on, on, on the windows, you know, uh, two-dimensional with no personality. These dudes were, were, were loud, rambunctious, funny, competitive, 
um, they were dudes, right? And, and, uh, and I can imagine, I like to imagine them interacting a little bit about writing the Gospels. Like, like Mark's like, man, I started my Gospel right where the action starts, at the start of his ministry. I'm all about the action of Jesus, and I started my gospel at the start of, of Jesus' ministry, and it does. Mark's gospel starts with the baptism of Jesus, right? And then Luke follows up and is like, hey, well, I, I started my gospel before that. I started my gospel when Elizabeth met Mary, right? Jesus wasn't even born yet, and he met John the Baptist, and the two babies were like having a party together, and they were still in their mother's stomachs. Like, how cool is that, right? I started my gospel before Jesus was even born, and Matthew's like, ha, whatever, right? I started my gospel with a genealogy. I go all the way back to Adam. I got you both beat, right? And John's like, yeah, I could have done better. They're like, what? What? You think you can go back and explain the Trinitarian creation? Man, that's way too complicated for the start of the gospel. And John's like, "Mm, hold my beer, right? I mean, seriously, look look at verse 1, y'all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's gospel opens with an explosion of poetic complexity. It is so simple, but it is profound in its depth, right? There are three critical truths that come out of this verse. First, right, in the beginning was the Word. In the arche, at the origin was the Word. That tells us that when the human story began, Jesus was already there. Jesus didn't have his beginning at the beginning. Jesus didn't have his start at the start. He didn't originate at the origination. He was already there. He was there at the beginning. He was pre-existent. In the beginning was the Word. Not in the beginning was created the Word or started the Word. No, He was already there. And then He goes on and says, the Word was with God. Right? So at the beginning, when the story started, Jesus was already there and He was hanging out with God. Like, He's there with God. A a separate, unique person to God alongside God. But more than that, he goes on and says, in fact, the Word was God. Oh yeah, he, he wasn't just hanging out with God. He actually was God. Which explains why he was already there when it all started. When something was spoken out of nothing. When God uttered a word and, and something beside himself suddenly began existing. Jesus was there. Why? Because he was with God and he was God. I was raised, as I've told you guys before, Jehovah's Witness. And, and, and in my youth, um, I was taught that um, Jesus was not God. That in fact, Jesus was Michael the archangel who became the Son of God, by obeying God to go on mission and become, you know, the, the, the Messiah. Uh, I was told that the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. And they're right in that sense. The word Trinity never appears in the Bible. It's a word that we've created to describe the concept of the triune God, the three who's and the one what. But the teaching of the Trinity is all over the Bible, right? John lays out a clear case In a single verse, a compelling, clear, complex case for Trinitarian truth. 
right? What he expresses in a single sentence, there are, there are volumes of theological exploration written about to help try to identify and define it. And the reality is the mystery that he's describing is best left in some ways as a mystery. How can you have one God that is made up of multiple and separate persons? How can you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three individual, unique and individual persons, but only have a single God? I don't know. You have three who's, one what? That's the best I can tell you, right? There's there's no way logically to make sense of this. So Paul, or excuse me, so John leads into the poetry of the description to lay it out for us. You're like, Steve, John's not even using the name of Jesus. You keep talking about Jesus. He just keeps talking about the Word. How do we know the Word is Jesus? Well, it's clear throughout the passage, but take a look down at verse 14 where it becomes ridiculously clear, right? In verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word incarnated. The pre-existent Word, the the Word that, that was at the beginning, the Word that was with God, the Word that was God, took on a human body, became flesh in order to dwell among us. So it's clearly Jesus. So why is John calling Jesus the Word? Why is that? What, is, what are we supposed to take away from that? Well, uh, there are two things that I want, I want to drive home this morning. First, it's poetic, and the second is that it's apologetic. Paul, excuse me, John. John is poetic, and he's leaning into the poetry uh, to describe something in a beautiful way that is a beautiful mystery, right? And he's also uh, using it apologetically to, uh, to, to drive some ideas home that are countercultural or counterintuitive to his culture. All right, so, so in order to dig into this a little bit, I'm going to have to get a little technical, so, so try to stick with me, all right? I'm going to dig in a little bit here. The word translated word is the Greek word logos. Did you follow that sentence? All right, the original Greek word that we read when it says word is the Greek word logos or logos, uh, depending on how you pronounce the vowel, doesn't really matter. Um, and here's the thing, there are two Greek words, translated word, that's a lot of words, Two Greek words translated word. One is rhema and one is logos, okay? Um, rhema would be the spoken word. Logos would be the expression of the thought. You're like, what? Uh, let, me, let me help you out. Close your eyes. I'm not going to punk you. Don't worry. There's no one coming in to put a pie in your face. Just close your eyes. I'm going to say a word, uh, and I just want you to picture it in your mind, okay? Chair. You can open your eyes. You pictured a chair, didn't you? I bet you everybody in this room pictured a different chair, at least a slightly different chair, right? Maybe it was a chair in your living room. Maybe it's a chair you like in your house. Maybe it's a chair that impressed you at some point, but you pictured a chair, right? That chair, the image of that chair, you understood it, right? So, so rhema is the word that I uttered. Rhema is the combination of vowels and, and, and consonants, the, 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 the sounds that I put together to communicate something. Rhema is the word that I spoke. Logos is the image that occurred in your mind. Logos is the meaning behind the word, the expression of the word, the the message that is communicated by those sounds. Does that make sense? Logos means word, but it means the idea that the word expresses, the thought um, that expresses that is expressed in order to communicate. Right. 
Jesus is the Logos, the very thought of God, the very expression of, of God, right? And, and then that, that word, that, 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 that thought, some, some translators would actually argue that Logos should be translated message. In the beginning was the message, and the message was with God, and the message was God. And that would be a legitimate translation, because logos is a word that communicates an idea. It is an expression, not just a generic expression, but a specific expression designed to reveal something to us, right? And so in many ways, Jesus is the message from God, the the thought of God expressed in a way for us to understand and to interact with, right? That, that, That message became flesh. Why? To live with us. And bring us a revelation of God's grace and truth. So there's a poetic aspect that, that, that John is leaning into by using this word logos, right? A poetic aspect where John is saying Jesus is, is the perfect expression of God. The thought of God made flesh. The, the perfect representation, the thought, the expression, the message of who God is and what he's about made flesh, right? But that still doesn't explain why John used the word logos uh, completely, right? There's a poetic aspect, but, but um, there is also an apologetic aspect. This word is new and novel to us, right? When we read John 1, every time I teach it, I have to pause and explain it because it doesn't make sense to us, right? We don't, we don't walk around saying, talking about a logos, right? We don't call things words unless they're actual words. There's no context for us there. But to the New Testament audience, there was a whole rich history that would have been connected. As soon as John used this word, it would have thought up a whole world of existing thought in the first century that we need to understand, right? So, so to understand this background, we need to go back, like way back, not as far back as John went, right? We're not going all the way back to the beginning of the world. Um, but, but about 400 years before Jesus was born, right? About 400 years before the Word was incarnated, there was a Greek philosopher named Plato. And uh, Plato was a guy who just would explore the nature of humanity and reality, right? And he would do it through storytelling, and he would do it through through uh, mind games, not the bad kind of mind games that trick you and ensnare you, but the kind of mind games that help you explore uh, what is real through conversation and interaction with other ideas. Plato discovered a lot of truth, right? Plato, at a time of, of right, we're talking before Jesus was even born, 400 years, this guy was, was exploring the nature of reality, and honestly, he discovered a lot of things that are very true, very real, and have impacted Western thinking uh, to this day in, in, in both good and bad ways. Uh, but he just, he stumbled into a lot of truth through this process. And he told a story that pictured the world like a cave. This is one of the, the, the critical pieces of Platonic thought, not the only piece by, by any means, but uh, he pictured the world like a cave, and in this cave is humanity, and humanity is facing the wall of the cave in the darkness, right? And, and, and we're unable to turn away, right? We are, we are, in effect, kind of attached to the wall. We can't turn our bodies, we can't turn our heads. We look at the wall in the darkness, and behind us is a fire. And then people move images in front of that fire, and in Platonic thought, that would have been like artists, or potentially political uh, people, um, maybe manipulatively working for the nation state to put images in front of us. And, 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 and the challenge was because we never turned around, we thought the images, the shadows that we saw in front of us were real. We thought that was real life. We thought that was the actual substance of the thing. But the reality was it was just the shadow of the substance. 
Does that make sense? So, so in Plato's view, we're stuck looking at these shadows, but because we're, we're ignorant, because we don't know, we think that the shadows are the reality. We think the things that we see are, in fact, the things that are real, right? The real world isn't just the fire. For Plato, the real world is outside of the cave. So it's like a two-stage thing, right? That, that first, you would have to, to be able to turn around and face the fire, which would be incredibly painful for your eyes because your eyes aren't adapted to the light. But you would have to have the courage and the, and the fortitude and the strength of character. You would have to be one of the elite, what, what Plato would think of as a philosopher, to turn around and face the fire. But even move beyond the fire, outside the cave, to where the actual sun is, where it would, blind, it would burn your eyes, it would be tremendously painful. But once your eyes adapted, you would come to see the beauty and wonder of the actual world. Right? You could actually see the reality instead of just the shadows. The irony, of course, is anybody who went out to that place, that philosopher who became fully enlightened, who then tried to return to the cave, would be blind in the cave because their eyes couldn't adapt. They would go back into the darkness and try to deliver the people in the darkness, and the people in the darkness would see them as blind guides, ignorant people who had been injured by the light, so they would kill them. They would kill the prophets. They would kill the philosophers, right? So in Plato's mind, what I want you to catch from this, in Plato's mind, we're all trapped in a cave of shadows and freedom comes from journeying into the light, from leaving the cave and going outside to the world of reality, right? The real world world is out there and the elite, the few, the philosophers are able to actually make the painful journey to escape into the true world, at which point they are cut off from the rest of reality and the people that are still left in darkness. All right, jump ahead several hundred years, uh, about 25 years before the birth of Christ, about 25 years before the incarnation, there's a guy named Philo, and Philo is a Jewish guy who lives in Alexandria of Egypt, okay, and, and he is a, a Platonist. So at this point, the ideas of Platon uh, have become like a, a school of thought. And Philo is in this school of thought. He has studied uh, Platonic theory, and, and he is in this school. Uh, and so like Plato, he thought we lived in a shadow world, right? That the real world is out there. We live in, in a shadow of the real world. What we live in is, is not real. The real thing is out there, and it's our job to kind of get out there, right? Now, now what's interesting is that Philo called this real world out there, the spiritual world, he called that the logos of God. He called that the expression of God. Now, for him, the logos wasn't personal. He wasn't talking about a person. He wasn't talking about a personality. He was simply saying that if you could get to this outside world, you could get to the ideal expression of who God is and how God intended things to be. Okay, so the Logos of God was like this idealistic view of how things could be if you could get out there. We live in a, in, in, in a copy world. And the goal is to escape this place and get out there where things are, are real, right? Um, <clears throat> the spiritual world. Now, it's only a short step later when two schools of thought would develop, first the Stoics, later the Platonic, or excuse me, the, uh, uh, the Gnostic philosophers. Um, and, and the Stoics and, and, and the Gnostics uh, would teach that the material world, the physical world we live in, is evil. That it's not just a copy, it's a prison. And we've been enslaved here. In fact, some Gnostic teachers would actually later teach that, that the physical world was created by uh, a false god, what we call a demonic god, uh, in order to ensnare us as spiritual beings and keep us away from the true experience of our, of our spiritual freedom in the presence of God. So physical is bad, spiritual is good. 
And, the, and the, the Platonic thought has developed from being in a cave to moving out into freedom. Now it is the physical world is the prison. And the path to freedom is to, to escape from it, to leave the physical world, to leave the physical appetites, to, to leave the, the nasty fleshiness of, of humanity and to move into the glorious freedom of a pure spirit and light. Some taught that the true God was so purely spiritual that he couldn't even come in contact with the physical world. Like, like it was just, like we would teach about holiness. A holy God cannot do unholy things. They would say a spiritual God can't even have contact with a physical world. And so he would send out logai, the plural of logos, thoughts. And these emanations, these thoughts could eventually reach the physical world but keep God separate from it, like ripples moving out from a, a rock that's thrown into a still pond. And so philosophers, the elite, the smart, the qualified could get these emanations, study them, understand them, and learn how to be delivered from this evil prison into um, the glorious freedom of, of the outside world, right? So it was a secret knowledge. That's what Gnosticism is all about. Gnostic means knowledge, and it's all about having a secret knowledge that nobody else has that allows you to be delivered. So are, are you following me here? I know it's a lot. But what we want to follow is that the, the school of thought is this. We live in a place that's a prison. We want to be free, but it's our job to work our way out to him. And the only way to work out into our freedom is to have special knowledge, to be unique and special ourselves to be somehow better than everybody else, smarter, more enlightened, more worthy than anybody else so that we can make our way into this place of freedom, whereas the great majority of people never will because of their ignorance. All right, And it can only be done by taking the painful path of self-denial, denial of physical appetites, denial of physical desires, deny our physical humanity uh, with all of its desires and hungers to become free of those things, right? To become more than we were, we had to transcend human limitations. <laughs> or to go all the way back to Genesis 3, we had to become like God. The same lie repackaged. You had to become like God. You had to become free, and in this sense, free of your human limitations, free of your human appetites, free of, of all the things that, in fact, made you human. So when John used the word logos, this is what I want you to catch it. He's doing it to convey a poetic power. No, no, no doubt about it. He is exploring something that is mysterious and, and, uh, and, and in poetry he is able to explore truth that is really, really hard to explain uh, just purely didactically, right? It, it, the poetry allows us to enter it in, in a beautiful way. But he's also speaking uh, with an apologetic point. In other words, an argumentative point, a point that is contradicting a common thought in that culture. He's saying, look, God isn't like that. Reality isn't like that. Salvation isn't a reward for those, those few who can get out of the cave. Freedom isn't a reward for those few who are worthy enough, smart enough, moral enough, self-controlled enough to work their way into this place of, of, of increased enlightenment, right? Nor do we get there by becoming less human. Our appetites 
aren't our enemy. Our fleshiness isn't in any way a hindrance to our spirituality. The goal is not to become less human. The incarnation teaches us that the goal is to become fully human. That's the path. Verse 14 tells us that the logos, the expression, the very thought of God, God Himself became flesh. Can you imagine how ridiculously offensive that would have been to anybody who had been influenced by the Platonic school of thought, who was stoic in their thinking. I mean, we're not just talking about philosophers who had immersed themselves in this way of thinking, because often what ends up happening is is these philosophies have a way of pervading common thought, right? They have a way of influencing, like, just common assumptions in a culture. This would have been offensive. This would have been kind of ridiculous. The idea that 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 the Logos of God was in fact God Himself, and then the God Himself like became flesh, right? That He didn't come with a message of how to escape humanity. He became human. As humans were meant to be, to show us how to be human. The Word became flesh. I don't think John could have put it any more, like from a from a, a stoic perspective, I don't think he could have put it any more crassly as a way to confront the dualism of his age, to confront the, prevail, the, the prevailing ideas of his age that somehow spirit was better than matter and the goal of humanity was to transcend physical lim- limitations. No, he, the word became flesh. In a world where philosophers said that we had to escape the physical world, and especially the nasty physical and emotional desires of being human. Jesus became flesh. The perfect revelation of God was no longer in the stars, right? Psalm 119 tells us that God revealed Himself in the heavens. That you can discover much about God by simply studying the natural order. Right? God revealed Himself in tablets of stone. In a Mosaic law, he he revealed himself progressively over time in different ways, but never has there been a revelation so full or so relatable as God relating to us in flesh. God meeting us in flesh. God become flesh. And like all living things, he would need to be fleshly. I don't know if you know this, all living things have to eat, breathe, and excrete. Three fundamental exercises of of human living. You're like, Steve, that's disgusting. I don't like to think about that. Well, that's humanity. That's plants. That's, That's fish. That's anything that's physical and alive. And God entered that. The necessities of it. He didn't transcend it. He entered it willingly, joyfully. He embodied it. The limitations of humanity to why? To dwell among us. The word dwell used in verse 14 is a a word that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to talk about God tabernacling with his people. The tabernacle was the tent of meeting that the Israelites would carry and set up when when they wanted to meet with God. So they would set up this tent and they would put the Ark of the Covenant in there and and they would have their, their, their exercises where they would come into the presence of God and meet with God. The tabernacle now exists in a person. 
the tent of God has now been set up in the flesh. We don't go into a tent to go meet with a box where there's a symbolic representation of God. We go to meet with a person who is the actual presence of God to dwell among us. You don't have to work your way out to God. He has come to you. You don't have to fight to endure the light. The light of the world shines not to hurt you, not to blind you, but in love to reveal to you grace and truth and grace upon grace upon grace, as John goes on to say. You don't have to try to escape your limitations to try to get where God is. God took on your limitations to meet you where you are. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh to dwell among us. I don't know that you can describe a more profoundly humble act of love than what we have described in these simple verses. That a transcendent God who lives in glory, who is self-sufficient, needing nothing outside of himself, voluntarily took on the limitations of his creation in order to meet those he created, to deliver them from their sin, to deliver them from their their brokenness, to deliver them from their rebellion, to deliver them from the cul-de-sac, the dead end that they had created in the rebellion against him, back onto the path to his kingdom, back onto the path to the purpose of the fullness and the flourishing of life, that they might be freed into the fullness of their humanity. That they might joyfully and gladly bear the image of God and stop trying to be God. Because they don't have to work their way up to Him. Because He humbly, joyfully, lovingly condescended to come to us. Two simple points to drive home as we as we uh, pull, pulling into the cul-de-sac, ready to pull into the driveway here. All right. So two simple points to drive home on this thing. Um, first is is how it meets us in our weakness, and secondly, how how it meets us in our loneliness, or our weariness and our loneliness. How does this how does this meet us in our weariness, our pandemic weariness, our social media weariness, our weariness? Listen, most of us aren't weary because we are physically tired. Some of you are like, Steve, come on, man. I got two words for you. Pandemic baby. Okay, I know some of you are exhausted. I know some of you have little kids. I know some of you are are bone tired. Uh, I get it. Okay, I get it. But the reality is genuine weariness doesn't come from physical exhaustion. It comes from soul exhaustion. And you know this because if your soul is, is lit up with excitement and joy and hope and energy... You can endure almost any level of physical exhaustion and you can do it joyfully. Like you can literally push yourself to the point of physically breaking down, but if your heart is full, you can do it with a smile on your face. Like that's actually one of the things I enjoy doing, um, weirdly, right? Your body can can push itself to the limits, but if your soul is good, your body is going to just regenerate itself. Our problem isn't physical tiredness, it's soul tiredness. We're not physically weary we're soul weary and nothing refreshes the soul nothing gives us energy like love 
And there is no greater message of love than of a God who not only created us, but loved us enough to become one of us. A God who is perfect in, in all of his attributes, in, in all of his glory, self-sufficient, in, 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 and, and, and isn't just the idea of love, but is the actual experience of love. That's why I love the doctrine of the Trinity so much. When it says God is love, it doesn't just mean he knows what it is. It means he's the eternal experience of it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three who's, one what? Loving one another, celebrating one another, delighting in one another. He is the eternal experience of love. He needed nothing outside of himself, but there was so much in him that he created us that we might experience it with him. There was so much good, he wanted to share it. And then when we rebelled against him and cut ourselves off from him, he loved us so much that he met us where we were that we might be restored to where we were, that he might meet us and take our punishment, that he might deliver us and give us his glory, that he might take the weight of the cross, that we might walk in the freedom of the resurrection. Nothing refreshes our soul. Nothing gives us energy like love, and there's no greater message of love. And as Aaron pointed out last week as he opened up this series, for this message to be experienced, for this Logos to be be experienced, it must be received. We must receive the message. We must receive the love. John writes in poetry. Um, I don't know about you. I used to hate poetry. Um, Didn't get it. Uh, I liked a good story, wasn't real good with poetry until I learned that the key to poetry is slowing down and sitting with it. Poetry has a way of opening up when you sit with it. Or maybe better put, poetry has a way of opening you up when you sit with it. See, poetry deals with, with, with images and metaphors and symbols and, and loaded language in a way that as you interact with it, you're changed. Things in you respond to what's being revealed to you. John's writing in poetry, not simply because he's clever, but because he knows there are mysteries here that require us to sit with them to be experienced. We need to sit in John 1. John 1 is inviting us to slow down, to sit, to listen and respond, and ultimately to receive that this embodied message might come to us and we might receive the love that it communicates, the truth and the grace that is embodied in Him. This message, y'all, has the power to revive your soul. If you have weariness of soul, as, as almost all of us do, we need to be revived. And we will be revived as we sit in the presence of love. So this addresses our weariness. What about our loneliness? How does this address our loneliness? I think the way God relates to us isn't just descriptive of what He did, right? The Word became flesh. That's descriptive of what He did. I don't think it's just descriptive. I think it's prescriptive of what we should do. That in other words, the same way God came to us 
and incarnated into our experience, incarnated into our space, took on flesh that he might dwell among us, that he might tabernacle with us. We are not simply to see that as a description of how God relates to us, but as a prescription of how we are to relate to others. We were never designed for disembodied human interaction. We were never designed to relate to virtual people. To, to, to simply find, try to find our sense for community in, in the world of ideas, disembodied ideas and interactions. Because that dehumanizes. It dehumanizes the people we are trying to interact with us, with, and it dehumanizes us. We were designed for incarnated community. To be in the body with others who are in the body. To see faces. To interact with the thousands of micro expressions that come across the face. And you're like, dude, I'm wearing a mask. I can still see your eyes. And the eyes are the window to the soul, as the poet says. I still would like to see your face. I'm looking forward to the day when we get rid of these things. But a masked face is better than no face. Yeah? We were never designed for disembodied human interaction. It doesn't make us more human. It doesn't make us richer in human experience. It makes us less than human and honestly gives us less than human interaction does. So here's my call. Put down the phone. Put down your phone. The reality is some of you are addicted to it. You don't know how to make your way through the day without the minor distractions that it gives you, your way of, of releasing the tension that comes from, from being limited, from being human, from, from, from feeling tired and not having the patience in order to interact with the people around you. Dads, listen to me. Your kids need to see your face. They need to see your eyes. They need you to be present. Moms, I know you're tired. And I don't blame you. Look, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't ever have your phone. I'm not, I'm not that guy. I'm not saying you should never interact with social media. I'm not saying, but I'm saying this, y'all. Part of the reason we're so isolated is because we're losing the ability to be patient with the slow interactions of human contact. We, we need to be stimulated. We need to be distracted. Life has become so fast that we don't know how to operate slow. This season, be incarnational with your family. Be present. Be at the meal. Not, not in the next event. Not planning for the next thing you got to set up. Not, not, not looking at the present moment as a distraction to all the things you have to get done later. Not looking at, at, at the current interactions and the smallness of that world as somehow robbing you from the stimulation that you could have if you were in some other space. Be present where you are. Be with the people, genuinely with the people that you're around.
For some of you, we have to, and I, I'm, I'm with you on this, okay? I'm not. <laughs> we have to relearn the patience of presence. We have to relearn the art of simply being present. I know some of you have unique challenges here. Singles, um, people that are maybe here and away from family and holidays for some of you are like some of the hardest time because, because you just feel cut off. You, you see all these other groups of people doing these things and you, you imagine them having this incredibly rich human experience and you're cut off from it and, and you feel like you're outside of that circle. And for some of you, that's really, there is a genuine isolation. The pandemic's created isolation. Maybe your, your job has created isolation. Maybe school has created isolation. I don't know. But here's the thing, you can't use that as an excuse. You, you can't just say, well, I can't find people to hang out with. People that I like. I just can't find people I like to hang out with. You're not looking for people that you like to hang out with. You're looking for people to love. And you can find people to love. Find someone to love, to serve, even if they don't love you back. Right? Jesus came into this world and incarnated love not because he liked the people he was hanging out with. <laughs> he didn't need anything outside of himself. He wasn't looking for approval or security. He had all of that already. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like he, he wasn't coming to find a friend group. He was coming to love. And here's the beautiful thing about love. You can't give love without being enriched by love. If you can simply love a neighbor, serve a neighbor... Find someone that you can serve, be a blessing to, study them. Like, stop thinking about yourself all the time. Study them. And think about how you can be a blessing to them. Try to discover what their needs are. And inconvenience yourself to step into those needs to be a blessing to them. You cannot be a blessing to another without being blessed yourself. The incarnation is the solution to our isolation. Embody the love you've received by giving it bodily, incarnationally, in physical presence to another. Because in loving others, you'll be enriched yourself. All right, y'all, he has come. He is coming again. Amen? All right. Let's receive this good news. And let's walk in the light of it. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. We're going to share communion. We're going to sing a little bit more. All right? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you um, just for the incredibly profound good news of Christmas. Man, it is so much more than a family gathering. It is so much more than presents. It is so much more than what we've made it. It is the embodiment of the greatest news ever given to us. That God became man. That you dwelt among us. Became flesh. That you might live the life we didn't live. And you died the death we deserve to die. That you might rise again. That we might join you in that resurrection. Lord, this is a profound love. This is a mystery that we will never fully comprehend, but we will have all eternity to contemplate.
and be enriched by. Help us to be present with it now. Lord, will you, will you, Spirit, will you awaken our hearts to the beauty of this invitation? Will you help us to receive this love, to receive this message? That we might be encouraged, that we might be revived. And that we might find the strength, the courage, the joy to love others even as we are loved to reach out, to cross barriers, not to wait for people to come to us, but to go to them, to love them, to meet them in their place, to bless them, knowing, Lord, that as we bless them, we will be blessed. Awaken us to this, Lord. And we thank you. Not only that you became man, but you came man with a purpose, to die our death that we might live your life. We thank you for that. And we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh. And all God's people said, Amen.